0: Um, Would you join me in Acts chapter number 10, the book of Acts chapter number 10 this morning? Uh, So let me follow up just real quick on what um, uh, Mike said earlier. Obviously, uh, praise the Lord, I appreciate the Dawes team this morning. And you dare not sit in these seats when they are up here because you could get hurt, right? (laughs) But I will say that there are some empty seats up here, even now. So to be clear, there is nothing spiritual about being on the front row, right? Nothing spiritual like, oh, you better sit on the front row. Nor is there anything super spiritual about being on the back row or in the middle or on the right or on the left. Um, but if anybody wants to move into this area, now is, is not too late, um, I might even appreciate it, just, uh, just throwing that out. Anybody like, hey, well, it doesn't matter to me, now's a good time uh, going once going. Jocelyn's getting in it. Thank you. Anybody? Yes, yes. Come on up. Thank you. Yes, yes. I see that hand. Anybody? No, I'm just kidding. Anybody else? All right. While you were finding your way to Acts chapter 10, um, I do appreciate Mike uh, praying for the nation of Israel, and I hope that you are doing that as well. If you're a Christian, you ought to be praying for our nation in this. You ought to be praying for the nation of Israel. So I don't have any planned comments. I'm one that writes things out typically, um, so I'm not going to spend long on that. Just we know that this is really, really complicated, right? Um, And what happened uh, eight days ago over there, uh, you say, man, that was an example of just inhumane uh, activity and this barbaric Uh, almost we think subhuman activity but I want to encourage you to pray Um, but as you pray do not pray arrogantly now listen what we've seen is not inhumane activity what we have seen with this literally cutting off the heads of babies we're told shooting up bodies of babies cutting off heads of women killing elderly and disabled people and in parading their streets through the body. This is not inhumane. This is human nature when it's left to itself. It is your nature, your nature and mine. When left to ourselves, that could easily be us. So don't get all high and mighty. What you do is you go to the Lord through the name of Jesus and say, Lord, thank you that by your grace, that's not me, but I want to use my audience with you to pray for these people. Pray for the nation of Israel. Pray for the Palestinians that are not part of Hamas, right? Pray that God would even have mercy somehow on those that committed these atrocities. Pray for the people around the world who are being so blinded by Satan that they're celebrating what this terrorist group has done. You ought to pray for them. Pray fervently. Pray consistently. Make it a point. So let's be clear. Who is lost over there? Which, which group is in their majority is lost? The Palestinians or those, their leaders, the Hamas or the Jews? Who has the majority of their people over there that are lost? All of them. All of them. So your number one prayer for Israel is that they would get saved, right, spiritually. That God would open their eyes. Because to this day, in the whole, there's a remnant. They are rejecting their Savior. You ought to pray that God would open their eyes. But also, when we read the Old Testament, I'm going to get to Acts 10 in just a moment, we know very clearly that they are told not to trust alliances with other people. Don't trust alliances, nor are they to trust their military might. And I'm kind of hoping in their heart of hearts that they're not trusting their military might or their. Now, they ought to be diplomatic and they ought to defend themselves and all of that. I'm not getting to all of that. But pray that their heart would ultimately be turned to God and they would beg God to be their defender. We need to pray for them. Acts chapter 10. Two things by way of introduction to this chapter. And let me kind of mention, I told Deanna something yesterday, I think it was, and she said, isn't that every week? And it is every week. But this is going to be a little heavier on the teaching side today. It's going to be a little heavier on the teaching side. So last week we had lots of preaching points, right? And that was kind of fun. I kind of enjoyed that. Preaching to myself, preaching to us. Uh, today is going to be heavier on the teaching side. So, what you ought to do, wherever whatever your relationship with the, with God is, right now and through this, you ought to pray, Lord, show me these truths. I know some of you are like, I really want to know what the Bible's about, and I want to make the connection so I get the whole big picture. If you'll pay attention today, and if God'll open your eyes, then today will be a message that, again. Many of you already know these things, but some of you know some of these things. And, not all, and some in here like, know hardly any of these things that we're going to be talking about. And you ought to just pray right now. Lord, would you reveal to me some truth so I'll better understand your word and what it's about. Because this is a very important chapter. So last week, not going to re-preach. I'm just planting a seed thought. So we're going to do an immediate context review. And here it is. Peter, while making his rounds among the church in Israel... Came upon a place called Lydda, and there was a man who was bedridden for eight years, named Aeneas, and through the power of Jesus Christ, Peter healed him. He got up and walked, and many people heard about it, and they heard the message of the gospel, and they put their faith in Jesus. Eleven or twelve miles away, in the city of Joppa, a Christian lady, a godly lady, died. And the Christians there heard that Peter was just 11, 12 miles away. And after she died, they sent for him. He came there. No doubt this takes hours to do. He gets there, goes in the upper room, sends everybody out, and he prays to God. And again, through the power of the Lord Jesus Christ, he prays. And she is literally resurrected from the dead. One of nine specific people named in the Bible that were resurrected. So here I'm just planting this thought. We know that God is using Peter and he's in a good place with the Lord. He's implanting that for next week. God, he's in a good position. God is using him. So he's going to come into play next week. But for this week, here's our review. We're going to expand out through chapters 1 through 9. So if you've been with us, you have an advantage. But if not, catch what we're saying. In Acts chapters 1 through 9, we have seen a steady falling Of barriers and resistance and tension, religious tension between groups of people. There are these walls that have been built, but in the church, as people are putting their faith in Christ, they're entering the church, and these walls are coming down. Do you remember the barriers? Let me review them. There were Jews in Judea, Judea, and then there's these Jews in Galilee. Do you remember the tension we felt when we were going through the book of Matthew? Of those two groups, who feels superior? Who feels superior? And those we got, we got Jews in Judea and we got Jews up in Galilee. Who feels superior? Those in Judea. We got the temple. We're down here in Jerusalem. You're those Galileans. Well, in the church, that wall has been coming down. Next wall, you have Jews that are born native Jews, born in the land of Israel geographically, and then you have Jews that, because of the dispersion back in the Old Testament. They were carried exile, and their families never came back. And so they were just born outside of the land of Israel. So you have native-born Jews, and then you have Hellenistic Jews, and there's tension between the two, and you can figure out who feels superior in that little group. But that wall has been coming down because we saw that back in chapter 6 and 7. And God ends up using this office of deacons to help bring that down. And so in the church, that doesn't matter. Nobody's going around saying, I'm a Judean Christian. Or, I'm a native born in Israel Christian. So we're kind of better than, no, that, that's gone. Then in chapter 8, there's this third wall that came down. And this was the wall between Jews and half-Jews called Samaritans. You can figure out again who feels superior than The other group, the half-Jews, man, they resent them. But the Jews feel superior to them because we didn't compromise the race. You guys intermarried with Gentiles. You're half We're still full, so we are superior. But in the church, in chapter 8, God saves Samaritans, and it's undeniable the Holy Spirit has fallen on them as well. So these walls are coming down, and in the church, they've gone aside. Still in Jewish society, but not in the church. And so today, we begin to see the fourth primary wall that is being broken down. You have a quote in there by a man named Ivor Powell. By the way, I'm sorry for uh, not giving you notice, Tara. Tara. I'm going to jump ahead before I read the Scripture. I'm going to give two notes in advance before we read. Would you write this down? Ivor Powell writes the following. So here's our fourth wall of tension and barrier, religious barrier, that's going to come down. He writes, quote, When the Lord gave the command to evangelize all nations. What do we call that? Evangelize all the nations. We call that the Great Commission. It's it's obviously in Matthew, and it's in Mark, and it's in John. Uh, there as well. Powell writes, When the Lord gave the command to evangelize all nations, the implications became obvious. God was widening the scope of his mission. Gentiles were to receive his words and become as equally important within the kingdom of God as any Jew. Now as you're writing that, think about it. Is that even true? That last sentence is a very strong sentence. Gentiles, because of the Great Commission, here's the obvious implication. Gentiles were to receive the words of Christ and become as equally important within the kingdom of God as any Jew. Like, is that true? That's where we're at today. That's the status that we learned last week. That we are called saints when you become a Christian. And there's no like second tier, top tier, third level. You know, it's not like I'm a, I'm a Jewish christian i'm way up here and you guys are down no it's we're one in christ and so this wall has been but there's a problem you're in chapter 10 chapter 10 and 11 really go together in their message flip over to chapter 11 i know we've not read 10 yet you got your bible there flip over to chapter 11 i'm going to show you a verse in a moment because here's the problem here's the issue the church to this point it started out man it was just all jewish they had to work out some of the barriers. But they're bottled up in Jerusalem. Finally, God allows persecution, and then Christians start fleeing the city of Jerusalem. And as they're going, here's the good news, guy. Here's the good news. As they're going, fleeing persecution, they're taking the gospel of Jesus, the good news, the message of Christ. They're taking that with them, and they're preaching it. So that's good. The problem is chapter 11, verse 19. Look at that. So here's a report card. We're in chapter 10, but here's a kind of a report card of what life was like in the church at this point. Verse 19, chapter 11, now those who were scattered because of the persecution that arose over Stephen traveled as far as Phoenicia and Cyprus and Antioch, speaking the word to no one except Jews. So for whatever reason, they're leaving town, they're going to a new place, and they immediately start sharing the gospel with Jews, but they're not telling it to anybody else. Though they've been given this great commission to go tell all the nations up to this point, they're not telling all the nations. Something is holding them back. Apparently, they don't feel comfortable yet doing this. And so that brings us to chapter 10. This chapter is going to build. And it's a narrative. And it's a lengthy chapter. And so you have a major advantage by being here today. And you ought to be praying, Lord, show me these things. And show me the the, the main points throughout this whole, whole passage This is one of the most important chapters, not only in the book of Acts, but in the entire New Testament. Why? Let me give you a clue. Kind of notice this. Again, I'm not pitting Scripture against Scripture. It is all inspired. All Scripture is inspired. It's all profitable. But some Scripture is even more profitable. It's not more inspired. Some Scripture is more profitable. A clue that we learn in chapter 9 is that the conversion of Saul of Tarsus is extremely important. How do we know that? Do y'all remember something I gave you, a hint? Here's how we know it's important in the book of Acts, because it is what? Anybody remember that? It's repeated. It's repeated. It's in chapter 9. It's in chapter 22, chapter 26. The events of chapter 10, what you're going to start reading this morning in a moment, it keeps getting repeated and laid down again and again. And next week's message is repeated again and again throughout chapter 10 and 11. It's like the Lord wants us to really understand the importance of this. So why is this so important? Your second note this morning before we read our text. Watch me first. So to be clear, and I know some of you already know this, but at this point that we're about to read, there were already Gentiles. Bo- I'm a Gentile. and Most all of us are Gentiles. At this point, there were already people who were born Gentile and had become Jewish. A jewish proselyte if they were male by being baptized and circumcised this is already in the church born gentile became a jewish proselyte heard the gospel and became a new testament christian this is already there born gentile but became jewish heard about that faith became jewish but then heard about Jesus being the Messiah. We're not looking for Messiah. He's the Christ. He's the Lord. He's the Son of God. He's the Savior. So they're born here, became this, heard that, and then became a Christian. So that's already there. That was there from day one in chapter two, if you go back and read that. So what's special about this? Up to this point, no Gentile still in their original state has yet to become a New Testament Christian all in one step. That hasn't happened yet. And so we've seen this, Gentile, Jewish proselyte, heard the gospel, become a Christian. But what's so great about this chapter is that here we're going to find Gentiles still in their original state, putting their faith and trust in Christ without taking the step of becoming a Jew. And as you're writing that, I realize some that are well rehearsed in your Bible may be thinking, Hey, hey, you keep writing. Some may be thinking, Hang on, Jeff. Whoa, chapter 8. Chapter 8. Remember there was the African. Remember the Ethiopian. He was born a Gentile. And because he was a eunuch, he had been emasculated physically. And therefore, he wasn't allowed to become a Jew. And yet, he ends up a New Testament Christian. So is it he really? And for that, technically speaking, I will probably give you that. But the whole tone of the New Testament and the tone of the book of Acts is that chapter 10 is unique. And here's why. Here's why I'm going to throw it out. Yes, this man officially, technically was not a Jewish proselyte, but everything in him wanted to be. He would have been, is the implication, had he not been emasculated physically. He would have. He makes this trip out of Africa up into Jerusalem specifically to worship God. Probably comes at a feast time, though he's not allowed to go into the temple. But it's like, I would be if I could. I'm doing everything that I can to be a Jew. And in that state, he then hears the gospel and gets saved. Another group that may be sitting here this morning. So I'm going to say that what we're looking at here is still different even than the eunuch. Another group that might be here this morning, you may be thinking this. Jew, Jindal, what does it matter? What does it even matter? So to be clear, that's nice for us to say today. That's where we're at now. But if you were to go back in time to this point in history... Here's what they have. They have the Old Testament, which makes it very clear. If you want to be in the group that's the people of God, then you need to connect yourself with the Jews, and you would become Jewish, and you'd put your faith in their God, and you would start observing their dietary laws and keep their Sabbath, and, go down, and, and you would go down and become a Jew, a proselyte, by being circumcised and baptized, and you'd start offering sacrifices as well and offerings. That's the, the method that would be done. But now chapter 10 is going to give us some new revelation. And then the rest of the New Testament, this is going to be a main, main point. So just before I read the text, isn't it just like God? That when he's ready to illustrate that Gentiles in their original state can make the step to become a New Testament Christian. God could choose anybody But it's kind of like him to choose a leader of the Roman army to do it. Isn't that something? It's like of all the people, here's this occupying army from the Roman Empire that the Jews don't like. And here literally one of their military men who's occupying in our land. That's the one that God's going to save. That's the prototype. Here's the test case and God brings out this man named Cornelius. Would you look with me at verse number one? Verse number one. So last we heard, Peter is in Joppa over on the seacoast. At Caesarea, so this is 30, 30, 32 miles up north, further on up the seacoast. At Caesarea, there was a man named Cornelius, a centurion of what was known as the Italian cohort. A devout man a devout man devoted committed deeply devoted he, that's just the way he is he's a deeply devoted committed kind of man so he's a centurion of the italian cohort a devout man who feared god he feared god with all his household gave alms generously we're getting this description of this man he gave alms generously to the, he doesn't just give alms food and money he gives alms generously to the people and prayed continually to God. doesn't mean literally all the time of his life. It's like he's just all through his life, all through his day. This guy's continually praying to God, and he fears God. And he's the Roman centurion, and he lives in Caesarea. And So I have that description. Now look at verse 3. About the ninth hour of the day, this is in their time period, the way they did time, this was 3 p.m. So picture in your mind, it's 3 p.m. About the ninth hour of the day, he, Cornelius, saw clearly in a vision, an angel of God come in and say to him, Cornelius. Three o'clock, he's doing something. He clearly sees an angel. The angel comes in and says, Cornelius. And he stared at him in terror and said, what is it, Lord? And the word Lord there is the idea of sir. What is it, sir? Because he doesn't know who this is. He probably thinks this may be God for all he knows. Clearly It's not. He stared at him in terror and said, what is it, Lord? And he, the angel, said to him, and this verse, I might spend some time on it a little bit. The angel tells Cornelius, your prayers and your alms have ascended as a memorial before God. You ever, you ever seen this? Here's a person praying, and you ever seen like a diagram, like their prayer, and like an arrow, and then the arrow's broken, phew, comes back down, and phew, oh, it just hit the ceiling, and come back down. This man is told by an angel sent by God, Cornelius. What is it, sir? Your prayers and your alms have ascended as a memorial before God. This is like offering sacrifice language. In other words, the idea of a person who knows their blessings have come from God and so they want to give back to the Lord. And they're making these offerings and sacrifices. And the angel says, your prayers and your alms have ascended up to God. And now, verse 5, and now send men to Joppa and bring one Simon who is called Peter. He is lodging with one Simon, a tanner. Two Simons, one Simon Peter. He's staying at the house of Simon, a tanner, whose house is by the sea. So there's, there's the vision. Cornelius, what is it, sir? Your prayers and your alms have ascended as a memorial before God. Send, therefore, men to Joppa and bring Simon Peter from the house of Simon the tanner up here. Bring him back to your house. His house, Simon the Tanner's house is by the sea. Verse 7 and 8 are very simple. We're going to have a brief moment of a third point. When the angel who spoke to him had departed, he called two of his servants. Hey, you two, come here. And a devout soldier. Hey, I need you to go get so-and-so. Which, yeah, so-and-so, I want him. And he calls a devout soldier and two servants from among those who attended him. And having related everything to them, he sent them to Joppa. Literally that afternoon. It's after 3 o'clock, and he sends these guys out 30-some miles away, go to Joppa. Everybody clear. Listen, guys, I just had a vision, and this being showed up, this man-looking thing, very bright. And he told me, "I'm I'm supposed to send you guys, so I need you to do this. Go down to Joppa. You're going to go to the seaside. You're going to find a house. Ask where Simon the Tanner lives. And he's supposed to have a guy named Simon whose surname is Peter lives in his house. We need that Simon Peter to come. And that's all we're told. I imagine they're like, yeah, but what if he doesn't come? I don't know. Just go get him. That's all I know to do. That's all I'm told to do. Make it happen. M-I-H. M-I-H. Make it happen. This is a military man. Make it happen. Get him here. Would you notice three things this morning? Number one, the description of Cornelius the description of Cornelius we see him described socially we see him described morally and I'm going to go and kind of encourage you right here really pray I'm going to hit several things in this section that I think are important for us to understand the description of this man in verses one and two number one we're told that he was a centurion centurion you guys already know where we're going right how long is a century how long is that hundred years if you have one cent, you have one one-hundredth of a dollar. So here's a man. He's a Roman military leader, and he has 100 soldiers. So he is a Roman man that is over 100 soldiers. He commands 100 trained killers. He's in their command. And Roman centurions were known to be the backbone of the Roman army. But here we're told that he was part of an Italian, the Italian cohort. So watch. Here he... Cornelius is a centurion over a hundred soldiers, and yet if you take six centurions, each with a hundred men under them, put them together, that makes a cohort or a regimen. And so he, along with five other guys, they were known as the Italian cohort, by the way. If, so everybody following so far? Here's how the Romans did their army. A centurion, these guys were key. They were extremely key to their whole empire. Man, they relied a lot on a centurion. He had to be high character, had to be super brave. I mean, these guys had such authority throughout the empire, they could have somebody beaten or killed literally at just a command. Just say the word, beat that person, and it would be done. Kill that person, and it would be done. Very powerful people. A centurion's over 100 Put six centurions together with each of them having their hundred. That makes a cohort of 600. If we, were to take six, uh, if we were to take ten cohorts, put them together, we would now have 6,000 soldiers. And that is called a Roman what? Say it if you know it. A legion. So this is a very powerful man among the Jews. Would you write this thought down? Custer ends up quoting Hackett as saying something's very interesting. Just throwing it out there quickly. All the centurions in the New Testament appear in a favorable light. That's interesting. I am not prepared, excuse me, (coughs) to do an exhaustive presentation. I tried to look it up, I didn't have a lot of time. There probably are seven or eight (coughs) centurions in the New Testament. Do you remember the one at the cross? (coughs) Excuse me. Do you remember him? Do you remember how he concluded there was a centurion? Yes, I know the four guys there were gambling over Jesus' clothing. But at the end of it all, after the earthquake and the darkness and how Jesus died, there was a centurion. And he said, surely this is the Son of God. Do you remember Matthew chapter 8? There was a centurion who sent word to Jesus asking, would you please heal my servant? So a centurion has a servant that is near death and dying. Word is sent. Jesus agrees. He's heading toward the man's house. Do you all remember what happens? He sends another delegation. This centurion, a high-ranking Roman man, tells Jesus through a, a delegation, please don't actually come to my house. Let this sink in. A Roman Military man telling a Jewish man, I'm not worthy for you to come under my roof. I'm not worthy for you to come to my house. But you don't need to come to my house. You just say the word wherever you are and my servant will be healed. Jesus says, I've not heard such faith by anybody in all of of Israel that has that kind of faith. This man knows I don't even need to be present. I can heal people from a distance. If you're taking notes, I want you to write another thought quickly about Cornelius. He was a man of great authority. To set this up, think, and some of you be like, personally, I don't know anyone that fits that category. Some of you be like, well, I kind of know their name. I'm at a big company. How many people do you personally know that have 100 employees? Between 100 and 600 employees. It is quite possible that Cornelius would have maybe been the lead centurion of the cohort. This man is extremely high character. How many people do you personally know that have 100 to 600 employees? This is a very powerful man. But what I love about him is that he was very willing to appear publicly vulnerable in his religion. Very vulnerable. I, I'm going to just tell you right now as I've studied this man, I love this guy. I love him even before he gets saved. I love, I love what is said about him. This is a tremendous man. He is willing to be vulnerable in his religion. Everybody knows what, what he does. He's known for this, and yet he's not shy about it. He doesn't hide it. He's out front. Again, a man that commands a 100 trained killers is known as a God-fearer and a fearer of God. I grew up in western North Carolina, and my family, I was talking with uh, some folks earlier about hunting. Most of y'all know my family grew up doing a lot of hunting. And at our little church, my uncle, his name's Dewey one of my uncles. He was our song leader, his old style song leading. And, and Dewey was a strong guy, really strong. You know, he's kind of big. I can't tell you how many times I've seen Dewey leading singing and just weep and cry. Toughest guy you'd ever meet. My brother is not the biggest guy that you'll ever meet, but my brother is actually one of the toughest people I've ever met. I mean, if you want something done, he does construction and plumbing and contracting. I mean, if you want something done, and it's going to take a long time to do it, when other people start le- and you want somebody that's going to stay and get the job done, I really don't know anybody tougher than my brother. He's not big. Man, he's tough. But some of you have actually seen this. If you go and if you were to be at church with my brother and you were to be with him while worship music has taken place, he is going to be weeping and crying, and he's going to be doing one of the toughest guys you'll ever see. I was telling somebody earlier, this guy's killed over 60-some bears. And he, you, want, you, need, you need somebody to traipse through the woods. I mean just woodsmen. These guys are just woodsmen and hunters and all that stuff, just tough. But, man, they are very willing to just weep and cry and worship God. I love this. That's the kind of man we're talking about. Would you look at verse number 2? Not only was that, but he was a devout, devoted, committed man who feared God with all his household. And here I'm going to do two things. I'm inviting you. Pray, Lord, help me to keep staying focused. Do you remember a couple of weeks ago, two or three weeks ago, we talked about what fearing God looks like? Do you all remember that? What What does it mean to fear the Lord? Because here we have a man who feared God with all of his house. So what is fearing God? Cornelius lived his life with an awareness that the God of the Bible, the God of the Jews exists, that he is always watching, and that he is going to call every single person to give an account of how they are living this life. This is how this man lives his life. He is a, this is part of his character. This is a personal attribute of Cornelius. He fears God. Again, let me say it again. While you're writing it, he lives with an awareness that God exists. The God of the Bible That God is watching and that God is going to cause everyone. We we sang it earlier. For from you are all things and to you are all things. All things are going to go back to the Lord. You will stand before God. This man lived his life with an awareness. I'm going to give an account to God. So here's the tough thing. We live in a day where we read that and we just kind of, it's very easy as Mike said. we, we, We can read the Bible and just gloss over things real quickly and not put a lot of thought into it careful that you don't just assume, yeah, a lot of people live with fear of God. I dare say not many people today live with the fear of God. That has been abandoned. Can I give you two evidences? Not only are most people in our country, most people around the world do not fear God. Not only are people committing acts of sin. When we commit acts of sin, we're evidencing we are not aware that God is close and he's closely watching at this moment. And I'm gonna, We wouldn't sin if we lived that way. But not only in our nation are people sinning, but things that years ago sin that would be committed and kept very private and hidden is now being done openly. And not only done openly... But celebrated and defended as a good, fine thing, and everybody ought to get over it. What that is telling you, we don't believe in the God of the Bible. We don't believe the Bible. We don't believe He's watching. And I'm not going to give an account to Him. This is what I say is okay, and y'all need to get over it. They're proving they have no fear of God. And again, what we've seen these last few days, and i got to tell you, I think it's righteous indignation. It is really... Difficult for me to see, number one, people celebrating what happened in Israel eight days ago. But idiotic reporters asking the stupidest questions. Far more concerned about how Israel is going to respond to the acts of terrorism than the acts of terrorism that were done against them. Why are they doing that? Because they don't believe in the God of the Bible. They don't believe that God is watching closely and they're not going to give an account. People are actually celebrating acts of terror. We are getting really whacked out in our country. This man feared God. But now I need to go further. There's a second thing about this phrase, and I feel pretty confident about making this point. And this is where you really want to pay attention. Not only did he have this as a personal attribute toward God, but God fears themselves was actually a term that referred to Gentiles. Pay attention. Gentiles who had forsaken their pagan religions... To serve the God of the Bible. You're like, oh, okay. I think you were talking about them. Nope, this is different. These God-fearers were Gentiles who forsook their pagan religions of their past and were now seeking to serve the God of the Bible, but had not gone the full distance of becoming a Jewish proselyte by being baptized and by being circumcised. So they fear God. They acknowledge Him. They want to serve Him with their life. Won't even worship Him. But they're not ready to go the whole distance of actually becoming a Jewish proselyte. And so these were known as a technical term, God fears. In fact, F.F. Bruce offers to us that among Gentiles who were exposed to Judaism Old Testament times, usually more women would become Jewish proselytes than men. And the thing was, uh, that whole circumcision thing, that was the deal breaker. That's the deal breaker. And so what he writes is that many men were content with the looser attachment of Judaism conventionally indicated by the term Godfears, And that seems to be where our man Cornelius is at. You say, well, what would god like? what they do? Watch. god would have typically observe the jewish dietary laws you all know about those right going into that next week jews don't eat certain things and so here are these gentiles who previously would eat that we don't eat that anymore because i'm serving the god of the bible and they would not only give that up but they would attend the synagogue services you say would the jews allow them to to attend the synagogue services absolutely absolutely And so they were allowed to attend, but they had to sit at the back. Couldn't participate, but you could sit back there and you could kind of listen. And this was usually one of the steps that would lead towards someone ultimately becoming a proselyte. So they're going to observe the dietary laws, go to the synagogue, allowed to sit in the back. But one more thing, they're going to observe the Sabbath days like the Jews. Pretty much everything except that circumcision. That's the holdup. One other quick thought here. And we're almost about to move to our second point this morning. A couple of more descriptions about this man that I think are important. Would you notice in verse 2? He's a devout man who feared God with all his household. Can I just insert this? You say, Why do you like this guy? He's a man's man, he's a tough guy, he's a powerful man, over a hundred men, military guy. But he doesn't in his mind think of religion as something that's for weak-minded people as a crutch. He doesn't think of religion as something that's for women or children. In other words, weak-minded people or physically weak people. No, he sees religion of the god of the bible as something that men would do and he jumps in both feet and he serves god as man he's not one of these guys and by the way i would say he's probably seen military action so he's seen all of that gone through it all but he's not one of these guys that just like sends his wife and kids to go worship god he leads his wife and kids in worshiping god i like this guy this is a tremendous man I would invite, so one of the things that I love about Graceview is that God has sent us some men who are not afraid to worship him and serve him. And I want to tell you, that's so important because you are illustrating that the most manly thing that could be done is to worship and serve God with your life. Thank you for doing that. But now, men, let me encourage you. Don't just be one of these guys, okay, I guess it's okay that my family serves God. I'll stay home while they go. Nor don't be one of those guys that just comes and sits and observes while your wife and kids passionately serve and worship God, and you're just kind of on the side. You take the lead. I believe this guy, not only, we're not talking about he used his power and his authority to make his family serve the God of the Bible, I believe this man was so authentic, and he had such high character. This, again, I'm, I may be reading it wrong, but I believe what's being put here is a man that was so authentic, so sincere in how he worshiped God, that his family wants Daddy's God to be our God. He is so passionate and authentic, and if that's my Daddy's God, I want, I want that God to be my God. I love this guy. And the last two things, and you think, boy, he's probably going to spend a long time on I'm not. He gave alms. Alms are when you give food or money to poor. And this man gave generously. He doesn't just give a little. He gives generously to the Jewish people around him that were in need. And he's also called a man who prayed continually to God. Can I give you a hint? What does that mean, prayed continually to God? You got your Bible open. We're getting ready to go back to verse 3 in a moment. But would you look at verse 30? Flip over. It's not on the screen. Look at verse 30. Look what it says. And Cornelius said... So Cornelius is talking to Peter at this point. We're well in the story. Cornelius is going to say, quote, four days ago about this hour. What time is it? He says about this time. So it was at what time of the day? Three Three o'clock. Watch what he says. Four days ago about this hour I was praying in my house at the ninth hour. And behold, a man stood before me in bright clothing. That's what he says. So it's like three o'clock. That's how he would say it in our day. So it's three o'clock. I was in my house and I was praying. Can I ask you guys a quick question? What were you doing? What do you do at 3 o'clock? You say, why is this guy praying at 3 o'clock? Because the Jews had three times a day that they especially set aside for hours of prayer. 9 a.m., noon, 3 o'clock. What is being projected to us is this, this man meant everything except circumcision. He has jumped in and he's praying to God. Apparently at 9 a.m. and at noon and at 3 p.m. he's praying. And that's when this vision ha- It happens while he's praying. This guy... Praise continually is the idea. Stuart Custer writes the following. Quick note before we go to our second point. He writes, Cornelius is a good example of people who are religious but lost. This is the guy you'd love to have as a neighbor. You say, yeah, I don't like my neighbors. Okay. I promise you, you would love to have Cornelius. Nobody's going to mess with your house when a centurion lives next door and he's the guy watching your house. Nobody's messing with your house. He's the guy that you're like, hey, here's the key to the house. Uh, the cat needs food and and water fresh two or three days. After two or three days, do you mind? He's like, No, no, I got that covered. You would love to have this guy. The only thing wrong with him is he's lost and on his way to hell. Other than that, this is a great guy. This is this is an awesome man. Now, would you notice number two, verses three through six, not only the description of Cornelius, but would you notice the vision of Cornelius? He sees a vision. Verse number three, about the ninth hour of the day, he saw clearly in a vision an angel of God come in and say to him, Cornelius, do y'all remember from verse 30 what he saw? Without looking, did anybody pay attention to the verse? What did he say? He says, it was about this time of the day, I was praying, and I saw a what? How did he word it? I saw a man in bright clothing. Angels can appear in some really weird ways. If you were to go read Isaiah and... Uh, ezekiel and i don't even know like if you were to say hey read isaiah ezekiel and here's a pen right now i have no clue what all these wheels within a wheel and all this wild stuff all i know is that in this situation what appeared to him was an angel but in this case it was as a man looked like a man wasn't a man but in very bright clothing and did you notice what happened he stared at him and he was in terror here, are, here is a, a centurion who were known for their bravery, and this man is terrified, but this is actually in keeping with what we see in the Bible. When angels appeared, I'm thinking again of Matthew chapter 28, there was this earthquake, and the stone was rolled back by these angels. And all the guardsmen, the Roman guards, outside of Jesus' tomb, they see these these two people, these two beings that look like men in bright clothing, and they're terrorized. It's, they became like dead men in their presence. And so here's Cornelius, normally brave, but he is terri- terrified by their presence. Let me just throw it out. Some of you are going to say, that guy's weird. This week, I promise you, you were in a situation that had your eyes been able to see clearly like he saw, you have been in situations this week, if you could have clearly seen the spirit world and the activity that was going on around you, and by that I mean angels and demons, you would have been absolutely terrified this week. You say, how do you know that? You don't know my schedule because you're sitting here right now. I'm telling you guys, this is real. There's stuff happening all around you. If, if your eyes could be open right now, you would, you'd wet your pants, and they're here. I pray every Sunday that demonic forces would not be allowed to be here. I hope they're not. You ought to join me in that. But if you just saw the angelic be like literally all around here, you would be terrified. This is real. And so this angel appears. What is it, sir? What is it, Lord? And then verse 4 comes. He stared at him in terror and said, What is it, Lord? And he, the angel, said to him, your prayers and your alms have ascended as a memorial before God. So I'm going to confess to you. I'm going to spend a few minutes on this part, on, on the second part of verse 4. And I don't know why. I was a little confused. I, I hope I'm, everybody with me? I hope I'm not just chasing some rabbit trails. This stood out to me as very odd. But nobody that I read, and I usually typically read seven other sources, nobody that I read made this an issue. They just kind of acknowledged it, which is good. It was legitimate, and then they moved on. But this causes me some problems. Why? Read verse 4 again. This angel tells Cornelius. Question. Is Cornelius saved or lost at this point? He is lost. He's unsaved. This angel tells this unsaved man, your prayers and your alms have ascended as a memorial before God. That causes me theologically to have some questions. This raises some questions. You're like, why? Look at the screen. I'm flipping back. I'm in Proverbs chapter 15. There's a Proverbs, a proverbial statement, a truth. Watch what the Bible says in verse 8. Look at it. The sacrifice of the wicked is an abomination to the Lord. So what this angel is saying, your alms and your prayers have come up as this memorial offering, like a sacrifice, and it's come up, it's actually ascended before God. God is acknowledging it. In essence, to a degree, God is receiving it. That causes me some problems. For starters, I'm just throwing it out, the sacrifice of the wicked. If so someone's wicked, and they come and they're going to offer God some offerings. Here's an animal, here's some money, here's some fruit or some grain. And God says, because of their wicked life, that's detestable. That makes me sick. Flip over if you would. Nope. Just look at the screen. Proverbs 28. Another thing. If one turns away his ear from hearing the law. So the law is declared. The Old Testament is being taught and preached. But a person refuses to hear that, turns away their ear from hearing the law. Even his prayer is an abomination. Detestable, sickening to God. So the wicked person's sacrifices make God sick and the prayers of those who just turn away from hearing the law, God doesn't want to hear it. I don't want to hear that. Get out of here with that. So that's the first thing that struck me. Now, I want to give you what I know to be a fact. Second bullet point. Did we we write that? um, Can we have the, the note? So the sacrifice of the wicked and the prayers of those who refuse to hear the law are called abominations called an abomination their sacrifices and offerings are called an abomination and when they try to pray don't care anything about the law of God God's trying to speak to them they have nothing to do with it, cast it off God doesn't hear their prayers now quickly, here's the second thing I want to propose you say Jeff why does this verse number 4 cause you some issues and, and raise some questions because in the New Testament follow me Genuine prayer is reserved for only a group of people. Who's it reverse, reserved for? God's children. And not just God's children, God's children who come to God through Christ. Prayers reserved for God's children who come to Him through Jesus. That's what the Bible teaches. That's what the New Testament teaches. Now, if you're writing that and paying attention at the same time, you may be thinking, hey, hey, wait, 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 wait. preacher, hold on. Are you implying that only Christians can really pray? Yes. Lost people are not God's children spiritually. And lost people surely can't come to God through the Lord Jesus Christ. Y'all know that coming through the, to God through Christ is not just some abracadabra. Hey, come here, listen. I've learned the secret. If you say Jesus, just say the name Jesus and it gets you abracadabra. Jesus. Oh, okay. God, I know you're out there somewhere. Jesus. Now you got, no. Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but by me. It's John 14, 6. John 16, verse number 23 and 24, Jesus is talking to his disciples about after his resurrection. Pay attention. He says, in that day, you will ask me nothing. But I say unto you, whatever you ask the Father in my name, he will give it to you that your joy may be full. Hebrews chapter 4, verses 14 to 16, tells us this. Seeing, since this is a truth, we... Believers have a great high priest who's passed into the heavens. Jesus, the son of God, who was tempted in every way like us, except he didn't sin. So because we have him as our high priest, we sang about it a few moments ago. Before the throne of God, I have a perfect plea. It's Christ, and as long as he's there, I know that I cannot be made to leave the throne of God. So that's never going to happen. He's always going to stand. So we have this great high priest. So let us, therefore, hold fast our profession and come boldly to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. How? Through our high priest. God doesn't hear the prayers of unsaved people. So what's going on here? How's this square? I'll offer the following. Proverbs, that two verses we looked at, refers to those who blatantly live in rebellion against God. So they just blatantly live in rebellion against God And then trouble starts coming their way, and what do they do? You've seen this over and over. People don't want to have anything to do with God, and all of a sudden, bad times hit, and now would you please pray? I never didn't didn't know you really believed that, but I need you to pray now. I've got an emergency. Please pray. And then now all of a sudden, they want God to help and and come to the rescue. They start offering these hollow prayers, and they start even offering these hypocritical sacrifices and offerings. I'll do this, and I'll do that. I just need you to please save my loved one. Please, hollow prayers. You know what God's answer to that is? Wait a minute. You want nothing to do with me. You ignore me. You offend me by your life. And then when when you get in some pain, all of a sudden you want me to make it all go away. That makes me sick. That's an abomination. And yet, what is the answer to my dilemma? Here's an unsaved man who's told by an angel, your prayers and your alms, your good deeds, have come up and ascended to God as a memorial. How do I square that? So I'm going to offer the following. God does not hear the prayers of unsaved people. They're general prayer. And God does not acknowledge and show respect and reward the activities, even the good activities of unsaved people. Except there are, I'm going to offer... An exception on each, each line. There is a prayer that God does here of the unsafe person. By the way, in the room right now, if you're here and you're not a Christian, you ought to really pay attention right here. This passage is for you. You ought to pay attention because you're going to have an action step of what to do. You need to do what this man did. And I'm going to propose to you that there is an activity that even an unsafe person can do that God notices and blesses. Would you look at verse 2 again? Would you look back at verse 2? Because he's told that his prayers and alms have come up, ascended before God as a memorial. He was a devout man who feared God with all his household. He gave alms generously to the people. Who are the people? Who do you think the people were? The Jewish poor. The poor Jews. The poor among the Jews. Everybody with me here? I'm going to say something important. Cornelius's generosity was directed to poor Jews. It was from his heart and sincere, or the angel never would have said it had ascended to God. Obviously, God knew his heart in doing it. He did it with the right motive. Now here, listen. No one can earn their way to heaven. No one, by any activity. But, in Genesis 12, God promised he would bless those who bless Abraham's descendants. That's a promise of God. God tells Abraham, your descendants, anybody that is good to you and your people, I'll be good to them. And so apparently what's happening here is that Cornelius' generosity and his alms are being given to descendants of Abraham and therefore God has noticed it. And this seems to be the exception. Oh, so that gets him salvation. No, hang on generosity, hear me, generosity to God's people and the poor will never earn a lost person eternal life, yet it is still wise to do. If you're unsaved here this morning, you're not a Christian, you ought to be a blessing to God's people. You say, who are God's people? The Jews are still God's chosen nation, and in the New Testament we know that Christians are God's people. So I'm going to propose to you, generosity to God's people and the poor will not earn you eternal life but it is still wise because God notices it God blesses it not as a debt that he owes but as an acknowledgment and a flow from his grace and honor to a promise that he didn't have to make God chooses to bless this person If only in this life God blesses that kind of person So as you're writing that I'll share again I'm I'm not a current events preacher but sometimes things are so obvious I'm concerned I look at what's going on in America and I hear what's going on I am actually very surprised that we have not received great judgment yet I'm really surprised I just wonder is it I'm not saying it has to continue. I wonder, is it because our nation has stood with the nation of Israel that God has held off judgment that we're earning? And here's what makes me so scared is when I hear more and more people taking the side of terrorists against the nation of Israel. And you know the pressure is going to mount over the next few weeks. Will they end up swaying our nation if they do? That would be extremely scary if we were to then start opposing the nation of God. Would that be all bets are off? There's no reason now why God would withhold judgment. You ought to pray that we don't do that. That may. I'm not even saying that God has to still honor that. He's already honored that. That may be the last little string that's keeping judgment from coming to our nation. God doesn't acknowledge the good works of lost people, but he does acknowledge that one. Doesn't give you eternal life, but he blesses these people in this life. And that's apparently what's happening with Cornelius. You say, hang on, Jeff. Prayer. His prayers ascended. God doesn't hear the prayers of unsafe people. You really need to pay attention. Cornelius is not only lost, but Cornelius is unique among lost people. Because most lost people don't know they're lost. Cornelius knows he's lost. I'm going to hit something that's a little subtle. I don't know that I'll have the words, but I think you'll get the implication. Can you go with me very quickly? You're not going to see it on the screen. You've got your Bible open. Will you look with me at the clues in the text about his prayer? Because I'm going to propose to you there is a prayer that God does here of the unsaved. Would you look at chapter 10? Start with verse 4. Go back to verse 4. That's our text. Would you look at it quickly? He stared at him in terror and said, What is it, Lord? And the angel said to him, Your prayers and your alms have ascended as a memorial before God, and now send men. There's a clue. Everybody with me? Hey, your prayers have ascended to God. So send men to Joppa. Fast forward, if you would, to verse 30. Not on the screen. You're going to need your Bible. I'm going to read it. And Cornelius, talking to Peter, says, Four days ago, about this hour, I was praying in my house at the ninth hour. And behold, a man stood before me in bright clothing. He said, Cornelius, watch. Your prayer. Singular. Cornelius. Here's his version. Your prayer has been heard. And your alms have been remembered before God. Send, therefore. Because, hey, hey, Cornelius. The prayer you've been praying, it's been heard. So, because of that, send men to Joppa. And you need to get this guy Peter to come, because if you look down in verse number 33, so I sent at once for you, and you have been kind enough to come. come. Now, therefore, we are all here in the presence of God to hear all that you have been commanded by the Lord. We're ready to hear you. You're supposed to say something. You're supposed to come talk to us. The angel, your your prayer has been heard. Because it's been heard, send send for this man Peter, and listen to what he's got to say. One more to look at. Here's another clue. Flip over to chapter 11. Quickly, chapter 11. Look at verse 13. This is now Peter rehearsing. I told you there's lots of repetition in chapters 10 and 11. It's important. Peter says, and he told us how he had seen the angel stand in his house and say, Send to Joppa and bring Simon who is called Peter. He will declare to you a message by which you will be saved, you and all your household. Now we're putting it all together. So we got to have verse 4 and 5 gives us some clue what the prayer is. Verse 30 to 33 gives us more hints. Verse Chapter 11, verse 13 and 14, when you put it all together, do you see what's happening? Here's a man who's not just lost. He knows he's lost. Pay attention, grace view. Let's connect the New Testament. He knows he's lost so much so that he's praying. You say, Jeff, what all do you think? I'm sure he prayed about all kinds of things, but the core of his prayer is this. God, I know I am not right with you. I know I don't have the right relationship with you yet. Would you please show me what I need to do to have a right relationship with you? Here comes an angel who says, your prayer's been heard, so send men to Joppa, and he's going to tell you what you need to hear to be saved. everybody starting to get the one prayer that God does here? Everybody, is that making sense. Now, you may be sitting here, and you're a good theologian, and you say, hang on, Jeff. He, hadn't he rejected the word of God? He's been reading the Old Testament, talks about, you know, the Sabbaths and the dietary laws. I'm sure he's doing that. They go into the synagogues. He's hearing the Bible teach and taught and preached. Sure he's heard all of that. Doesn't he just need to get circumcised and become an actual Jewish proselyte? Hold up. We're 10 years now past Jesus dying on the cross. If he did become a Jewish proselyte, is that sufficient to save him? No, he needs some new revelation. That won't work anymore. I don't know how he knew, but this man knows. I need something more than that, and I don't know what it is. Would you please give me the revelation that I need? And then along comes God and says, that prayer I'm listening to, you need to send for a guy named Peter, and he's going to tell you. Would you write that down? Why is Cornelius so great? Because he lived up to the light that he had. He lived up to the light that he had. Living up to the light he had did not save him. But God took notice of him living up to the light that he had. And he heard his request for more light. And so God is going to answer his request for more light. And that's the prayer that God answers of the lost person. The good activity that God acknowledges of the lost person. You give to the poor out of the right motive. And you bless his people. It's not going to get you eternal life, but God's going to acknowledge it, and he's going to put a blessing on you, even if only in this life. Unsaved person, you're praying for this, that, and the other. God's not listening. God's not receiving that prayer. You go to God and say, God, I know I'm lost. Would you please reveal to me what I need to do to get right with you? And God, whatever you show me, I'm going to do it. I dare you to pray that and mean it. Pray that and mean it. I'll tell you what's going to happen. God's going to, going to give you a revelation. One last thing before we hit the third point super fast. Does verse 5 cause you a little problem? Do do y'all see that? Hey, your prayer's been heard. Good news. God's going to answer it. Really? I'm going to find out what i got to do? Yes. You're going to find out what you got to do to get, get saved and get a right relationship with God. Oh, good. What is it? Yeah, you need to send for him and he'll tell you. Why doesn't the angel just tell him? We could stop right there, couldn't we, and just pray and just leave that with you? Why didn't the angel? Uh, chapter 8. Don't flip there. Chapter 8, verse 26. Philip, an angel, tells Philip, go over there and join yourself to that chariot. There's a lost man over there, and Philip goes and joins himself to the chariot, and it's the an Ethiopian eunuch. He ends Philip ends up leading the Ethiopian eunuch to the Lord. Why didn't the? Well, if you know he's lost, you go do it. I was up there having a revival up in Samaria. You brought me down here. To the, you just go talk to that guy. You know the gospel. You go tell Why doesn't the angel in these two cases, just give people the gospel. MacArthur offers the following. MacArthur writes, although an angel will proclaim the gospel in the future, y'all look it up, Revelation 14, 6, it's going to happen. God has chosen to work through human instruments. Could I add the word for now? An angel is going to fly and... Every nation, tribe, and tongue are going to hear the gospel from this angel in Revelation 14. But the apparent situation is God does not use angels to do it. He uses angels to connect people. Hey, you, Christian, go tell them how to get saved. That's God's plan. That's the plan of God. There is no plan B. I can say this so confidently. No one in here, none of you, heard the gospel the first time from an angel You can meet me after the service if this is you. Hey, I never heard anything about the Bible or the gospel. An angel appeared out of nowhere, told me the gospel. I put my faith and trust in Jesus, and then they were gone. No, you did it, and you don't know anybody that is that way. God uses people. But one last thing MacArthur finishes before we go to our last point. Catch it. Here's a nuance. Quote, God also wanted Peter to observe firsthand Cornelius' salvation. The angel could have shared the gospel and and maybe Cornelius gets saved. But God, correctly, he's right. God wanted Peter to observe firsthand Cornelius' salvation. Only then would he be fully prepared to accept Gentiles into the church. Y'all do remember Matthew 16. You remember that? Hey, fellas, Jesus says, fellas, who do men say that I am? And they go through this list. Some people think you're that and that and that and that. Who do you say that I am? Peter says, you, you are the Christ, the Son of God. Jesus says, blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, because flesh and blood has not shown you that, but my Father has revealed it to you. And on this rock, on that declaration, I will build my church. Peter, and I'm going to give you, Peter, the keys to the kingdom. What do you do with keys? You open things. And so it was a God-ordained plan that Peter would be the guy on the day of Pentecost that would be there to witness the outpouring of the Holy Spirit in the upper room, and he would be a witness to the outpouring of the Holy Spirit on the 3,000 that end up getting saved and baptized there in chapter 2. He's eyewitness to that. Remember chapter 8. Hang with me. I know I'm hitting something a little tricky here. Chapter 8, Philip preaches to the Samaritans. They get saved by faith, but they don't have the Holy Spirit until Peter and John come Peter, in essence, has the keys where he opened things. Peter comes and lays hands on them. Then they receive the Holy Spirit in his sight in a visible way. God's plan for Peter is in chapter number 10. At the end of this chapter, he's going to be there not only when the Jews are brought into the faith and when the Samaritans are brought into the faith, chapter 2 and 8, but in chapter 10 when Gentiles are brought into the faith in a very visible way where the Holy Spirit will literally be poured out on them like back in chapter 2. It was God's plan for Peter to use the keys to open the kingdom to each type of person coming into the kingdom so it's not don't plan on angels witnessing to your family and our community and lastly in verse 7 and 8 would you notice the obedience of Cornelius do you notice the obedience verse 7 when the angel who had spoke to him had departed he called to the servants and the devout soldier from among those who attended him, having related everything to them, he sent them. He sent them to Joppa. Can I make a real simple point? The angel says, your prayers and your alms have ascended before God. So because of that, send men to Joppa and get Peter. Do you know what those two words, send men, what does men mean? Let's just keep it real, real simple. Send men means not just, not just one. Send multiple men. He's going to send three. Send to get Peter means not you. You don't do it. You send men, more than one, to go get him. Here's the location. That's the name of the house. This is Simon's name. This is Simon Peter. Get him to come back. Do you see these very specific instructions? Yeah, I don't really see a lot in seven and eight. It's a simple point. He does exactly what he's told. Exactly. You say, does it matter? Not on the screen. Look at verse 24. Do you see what? Well, well, then what's he doing? Wouldn't he be tempted? Send men. Nothing. That could take days. If this man's got it, I'm going down there and I'm going to go here firsthand. No, no, no. Verse 24. On the following day, they entered Caesarea. Cornelius was expecting them and had called together his relatives and close friends. He had another job to do. You said, Jeff, uh, you said you had a simple thought. It's this one. Enjoying, I hear it, enjoying the benefit of God's promises often demands and depends on obeying every detail of His instructions. That's a takeaway. You say, I I love the promises of God. Are you enjoying the promises of God? And you're like, now there's some of them I'm just not finding come true in my life. Enjoying the benefits of God's promises often depends on obeying every detail of His instructions. Watch. You say, I want to go to heaven. And I'm not a Christian yet. Listen. It is not enough for you to come... Or to meet with a Christian and for them to tell you that your sins have offended God. But God loves you so much. He sent his son, Jesus, who took your sins on himself. And God punished Jesus and your sins in Christ on the cross. And then he he was raised from the dead. And God accepted his death in your place. So if you will put your faith and trust in Jesus, then you get to go to heaven and you'll be saved. I just told you the gospel. It is not enough to hear and even say, that actually makes sense. I now got it. Jesus took my sins. God punished my sins in Christ on the cross. When he rose again from the dead, proves that God accepted his death for me. And God has made these promises. If I'll believe on the Lord Jesus, then I'll be saved. I now get it. That's great. You understand. That will not save you. That's step one. You've got to go the next step. You actually have to agree with God about those facts. You've got to agree with God. God, I am a sinner. God, I have sinned. God, I do believe Jesus is your son. I do believe his death was for me, and it is enough. And I do believe you would save me if I asked you. It is not enough to understand the facts or even to agree with the facts. Ultimately, you know what you're going to have to do? You're going to have to ask him to save you knowing he will do it. Don't lose the benefit because you didn't complete the specifics of the details of the instructions. Watch. Last week we talked about how Christians are saints. What chapter did I refer to that proves to the Christian that sin does not have power and dominion over us? What chapter was that? Romans 6. Here's a fact. Here's the fact. If you are a true Christian, you do not have to commit any sin, no matter how strong it comes against you. You, unsafe person, they don't have a lot of defense against it. You don't have to sin. You never have to sin. But Romans chapter 6 gives three steps. you got to get them all. Do you all remember the steps? Number one, you have to know that sin has no dominion over you. You have to know that when Christ died, you were in him, what Mike talked about in Ephesians 1. You were in Christ. You died. You died. Your old nature died in Christ on the cross. So sin has no power over a dead person. You're alive, a new kind of life, in Christ. You've got to know that. You say, well, then, that ought to do it, right? I should be experiencing the victory of these promises of God. No. You've not only got to know it, in the moment when temptation comes, you have to not just know that. You have to consider it to be so. These are Bible words. You have to consider it to be so. This, I not only know this fact, I am counting it as a fact. Sin, and I talk to my sin sometimes. You don't have power over me. I do not have to do you. And there's a third word, present. You've got to know that sin has no power. You've got to consider it to be so in the moment. And then be busy presenting the members of your body as instruments of righteousness. Give your, God, give your eyes to God as instruments of righteousness. Your hand, your tongue, your feet, your mind as instruments of righteousness. You know and consider and present. Sin has no power over you. You can't skip. Last one. Christians can pray. I just preached on it right in the middle of the message. Didn't I? Christians can pray. If you think for a moment all you got to do, I'm a, I'm a real Christian, and you just go mutter some words, a little wish list, and things are going to start happening. No, no, no. You have to pray, not just Out there, somewhere, you have to pray to God with faith. He hears and he will do this. He can do it. He will do it. You have to pray through Christ. God, I'm not just coming because I'm your child. I'm acknowledging that the only reason I'm able to pray to you is because of Jesus. And I'm coming boldly. I'm praying to you with great faith in the name of Christ. Not just for all the things that I want that might even be sinful. I'm going to pray for things that are according to your will. And oh, by the way, thank you and please forgive me of these things that are in my life. That are trying to break fellowship with you. You come with confession and adoration. Don't lose the benefit because you forsake some of the details. Heads bowed, eyes closed. If you're here this morning and you know, you're watching online... And you say, Jeff, actually, I know I'm not a a Christian. I know I'm unsaved. I want to encourage you. Do two things. This is what you need to do. Two things. You say, I don't even know how to be saved. Like, sincerely as you know how, by faith, talk to God. He will hear this request. And just tell him, God, I know I'm not right with you. I want you to show me how to be right with you. And then as you're doing that, talk to God. I encourage you, surrender to the Lord. Surrender fully. God, whatever you show me that's backed by your words in the Bible, I'm asking you to show me how to be right with you. And I'm going to do. I'm going to respond to what you show me is the way to have a relationship with you you pray how all the evidence shows that Cornelius prayed, would you pray that way? And if we can help you, you may be here this morning, you just prayed that prayer and you're like, I'd like to meet with someone, then we can meet with you. Maybe you're here this morning, you're like, hey, I've heard y'all talk about a Bible study. Bible study where I get to go through it and see for myself I would like to do one of those Bible studies one of those four lesson Bible studies if that's you, you see me, if you're a lady we'll get you hooked up with a lady, we got people wanting to do it, if you're a man you're like, I don't know how to be a Christian, but I'd like to do one of those Bible studies, you pray and ask the Lord to show you and then you just say, hey I want to hear from the Bible, I don't need everybody's opinion I want to know what God's word says, how to be saved, and we can help you God uses people And just before I pray, Christians, can I say this? Everybody, even if you're not a Christian, you still ought to hear this. Nothing good that's ever done for God's people escapes God's notice. Whatever good is done for God's people. You're not going to get saved by it, but God will bless. You be a blessing to God's people, and God will bless you. If only in this life. Men, lead your family. In the fear and worship and service of God. Lead your family. You say, yeah, but a lot of a lot of water's gone under the bridge. My kids are such and such and that you start right where you're at. And you start setting the tone. You are going to worship and serve God. And just before I pray, is there any promise of God you're not experiencing? Could it be that you've forsaken one of His clear instructions for that promise to be Experienced as a benefit to you. Father, thank you for your word. I pray, Lord, that a lot of layers would come. I know this is an unusual message, Lord, but I pray that you would grow us and teach us, but inspire us. Lord, we thank you that you saved Gentiles. Father, we confess, left to ourselves. We're nowhere as good as this man that we've been talking about this morning. He's a lot better person than we are. But God, thank you that you used him as a test case, a prototype. And we get to see how he trusted Jesus, received the Holy Spirit, he and his household. Lord, I thank you. That, that day in 1979, I called out to you. I cried out to the Lord, and he heard me. And that's why I trust you. Lord, if anyone's here this morning that is lost, I pray that you would put it upon their heart to reach out to us so we can help them and be used by you to lead them to faith in Christ. It's in his name we pray. Amen. Have a great week. Enjoy your home groups.